Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient and help us to understand what that means tonight, especially in view of biblical counseling and how we're supposed to communicate that to the counselee. Um, I pray, gracious Lord, that uh, you would uh, just help me to recall all of the different things that I wanted to bring out. Uh, if there's anyone's on the way tonight, I pray that you would uh, bless them and keep them safe. And uh, just be with us and bless us uh, tonight as we delve into your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So finally... We are, are talking about the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the problem of, of authority and all of that good stuff. And uh, I've entitled the first part of part two, as you can see, The Authority of God and the Problem of Authority. The Authority of God and the Problem of Authority. Um, how might we... Uh, understand those words. Well, God has authority in the fact that he's, his is the first voice and his is the voice that defines what is. Not just in the physical realm, but also in every other realm too. Uh, and in the moral realm, he also defines what is as far as the way we should think, the way that we ought to think. What is the optimal way that our brains should function in this fallen world? What is, uh, what are the things we should value? Uh, where should our will be inclined? Remember we've spoken about the will and the heart. Um, our heart is fallen, see the last time, so that our heart cannot be trusted and our heart needs to be constantly overruled <laughs> and trained and uh, questioned and suspected. Uh, what that means is that uh, we need something that's powerful from outside, something that's more authoritative than our say-so or the say-so of uh, our particular culture, the fads of the time, uh, something that's, that's solid, something that's concrete, something that is uh, unchanging, to bring in so that we can correct ourselves. A true mean that is always reliable and never budges, never changes. Okay, That's what the Word of God is. Um, so the authority of God is, first of all, therefore, the authority of his word. But it's also, of course, the authority of his person, of who God is. God is just not the king of the universe because he happened to be next in line to the, you know, the throne. He's the king of the universe. He's also the creator of the universe. He's the judge of everything that goes on in the universe. He's the sustainer of the universe in perpetuity, perpetuity, uh, till the end of time and beyond time, whatever, uh, however we understand eternally, eternity. Um, so there is only God. 
Do you see? In the beginning, God. In the end, God. God the same. Um, God perfect and pristine in all of his ways and in all of his understandings of us and all of his dealings with us and the world and the environments in which we live. So God's, God's authority, therefore, rests also in the fact that he's God, uh, who he is. Of course, the two are brought together in, um, in the word of God, the Bible. The, uh, the understanding of who God is comes from the Bible, and the authority of that God who is revealed in the Bible comes or, or is produced within the Bible itself as being his God-breathed word. And I want to say something about that uh, to start us off, okay? This issue of authority. We talk about the Bible as the final authority, do we not? You know, if we're good conservative Christians, we say that. So, what does this mean? Well, this word is very important here, final or ultimate. We might also say that the Bible is uh, the final court of appeal. Although that can be somewhat misleading because a final court of appeal is something that we appeal to usually at the end of a series of, uh, you know, thinking and trials and, and what have you. The, by final authority or ultimate authority, we should mean this is the first authority as well. This is the first one we consult. This is the one that we repair to at all times. We don't go to another authority before we go to the Bible, thinking, well, we've, we've always got the Bible if we need it. Do you see? By final authority, we also mean that it's the first authority that we turn to. Do you, do you get that? That's very important that we, we underline that. So, if it's the first authority and it's the ultimate authority for us, then obviously... It cannot be questioned by another authority. Why not? Somebody tell me why not. Yeah, because it's the ultimate authority. If it could be questioned by another authority, obviously that authority would be the ultimate authority and the Bible would be subservient to it. There has to be uh, a final authority. And guess what? We get to choose what it is. And then we get to answer to God for our choice of what it is. So we need to be careful. The Bible is the only book that comes from God. It is God breathed out. Therefore, that would be the one to choose, I think. All of the other ones come from falling human beings like you and I. Therefore, those would be much further down the list. They may have some authority, they may have something to say here and there. Many of them don't have anything to say. Uh, but as far as, as choosing an authority for our life, for the government of our thoughts and our heart, for our understanding of our place in the world and so on, the Bible is it. There isn't the Bible plus, you know, well, I need to try the Book of Mormon and I need to try 
the Koran and I need to try the Tripitakas and I need to try the I Ching and, and all the rest of it, you see. Um, those are not inspired books. Um, the Koran claims to be inspired, but there are very, very many good reasons to believe that it isn't. Uh, I'll give you one. It gets the doctrine of the Trinity wrong. How can God get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong? So obviously it's not from God. Even the, even the, uh, the God of, uh, of Islam, who is Unitarian, he's not Trinitarian, he's Unitarian, uh, you would think that he'd be able to get the Christian understanding of God right, wouldn't you, if he was truly divine. But he doesn't, gets it wrong. Therefore, it cannot be the word of God. And there are many other reasons for that too. Many reasons. So the Bible is the word of God to us. It is, therefore, the ultimate authority because it's the only word of God to us. Um, and I'm going to come back to that. It's the first authority and it cannot be questioned. Now, do you see... Um, here, let's just put that the Bible is the first authority, so we go to it first, but we're always going to come back to it, aren't we? Do you see a problem with that? I mean, I've just drawn it on the board for you. It's what we call circular reasoning. Yeah? Why is that not a problem? It normally is a problem for logic, you know. Uh, I'll give you an example of, of bad logic, of circular reasoning. Um, that evolution is true. Okay. Therefore, we teach evolution only. And why do we teach evolution? Because evolution is true. Why do we not allow uh, intelligent design to be taught in our schools? Because evolution is true. Why do we not allow creationism to be taught in our schools? Because evolution is true. That's a vicious circle. Okay? Why is this not a vicious circle? It's true. You're getting, the, you're getting there. It's close to that. Beginning and end, first and last. It's because you have to choose a final authority. Do you see? And your final authority is your final authority. So choose wisely. Doesn't that come from uh, Indiana Jones movie? Um, of course, if I, if I had a beard and an ashen face and I was dressed in medieval armor, I could say that with authority. Choose wisely. But, um, of course, as Christians, we understand that this is a circle, but it's not circular reasoning as far as a, a logical problem is concerned, because you, everyone has to choose a final authority. Every final authority is, by definition, uh, involved in a big circle. So if somebody was not did not have the Bible first, if they had the Koran first, that would be their final authority, and their their outlook would look different because of that choice. If somebody believed that naturalism 
the belief that nature is it, okay, which is taught in our schools, if that was the final authority, then of course, you know, that would be their circle. They would come back and they, they wouldn't reason back to theism, would they? They'd reason back to naturalism. It'd just be a very stupid choice and a very dumb choice of, how, of uh, final authority. So, how do you choose? Well, you choose based on, well, several things. But just to keep it simple here, uh, and, and for kind, time constraints, you choose based on, first of all, naturalism automatically brings you down to the human level, doesn't it? You you are restricted to human reason. So you can't go outside of human humanity and human reason, which is faulty and often foolish, for your reasoning. Also, human ignorance. We don't know what we don't know, but we do know we don't know a lot. Unless we're college professors, then we think we know everything. But... Um, but, you know, there's, there's so much that we don't know. And so science, for example, has to be revised every ten years, doesn't it? What was scientific ten years ago is not scientific now. Just think of diets, just think of, of what they knew about the cell, um, the universe, the planets, and all of that. Uh, so you, you are committing yourself, therefore, to, to ignorance when you choose Humanity. If you choose the Koran, then you're, you're also choosing a book that says that the sun sets in a mud puddle in the east. Okay? You're also, you, you know, you're, you're choosing a book which advocates violence towards unbelievers in the Medina surahs, the most authoritative surahs. You're choosing a book where the, the last surahs which contradict the earliest surahs, are the most authoritative. So the earliest surahs talk about um, Christians and Jews being people of the book and show them respect and all that. The last, the last one says kill them. <laughs> so the latest ones, you know, you've got a book basically with dual levels of authority in it. Do you see? Also, it, it, you have uh, uh, revelations to Muhammad that tell him it's really okay to marry like a 13-year-old girl even when you've got how many wives and, and so on. Do you see? Just And it just so happened that, that he, he had married a 13-year-old girl. So it's amazing how that revelation came along. When it did, very handy. So, you know, you can choose that revelation. You can choose the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, who we know was a con man. Okay, But you can choose it if you want. Um, you can choose... Karl Marx uh, and his writings, and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, whether they know it a lot uh, or not, a lot of university and college professors choose Marxism. Okay, so you can have that, but then of course the individual doesn't matter in Marxism. What matters is the state, statism. So, the state is all. So, if you see a march towards a big state and state control, i.e. the left, today, then that's Marxism, okay? We know what you need, and we're going to, you know, 
control you, control your information, control what you can talk about, what you can't talk about, where you can go and all that sort of stuff. The state is the big deal, okay? So that's, you can choose that if you want. There's also, there's all kinds of other things that you can choose. Or you can choose the Bible, which claims to be the revelation of the triune God. Who would think of the Trinity? It claims, it, uh, it, it claims to be the revelation of God Almighty, the Creator, and has been believed to be so, and has had a, a huge effect on the West or in all those countries where it has taken root. It is the Bible of Jesus Christ. You encounter Jesus in the Bible. You encounter prophecies about Jesus in the Bible. It is authenticated by the word of Jesus in the Bible, isn't it? And so you can choose that. And that's what we do. We choose that. But wherever you choose, you're going to have, if it's your final authority, your ultimate authority, you're going to have a big circle. How much info and, and understanding of the world and yourself you can get into that circle depends on how you choose your circle. Do you see? And it just so happens that if you choose the Bible, you can understand the whole shooting match if you study it. I mean, in theory, you can stand up. You can even understand why people don't choose the Bible. You can understand why people do foolish things and choose foolish things. Because it tells you. You can understand the human heart. You can understand why people go wrong. You can understand your own impulses that you don't like. You can understand... Um, that you have hope, you can understand this feeling of wrongness that you have in this world, that the world's not the way it should be. You can understand this, this feeling of it's, it's created, it's ordered, it's beautiful, it's like made for you. Um, you can understand love, you can understand your own reason, you can understand that Intellect isn't wisdom, but wisdom is what you need to go after. You can understand it all. Yeah? So that's that's a good circle. And it also, Robert, happens to be true. It happens to be uh, the only actual fount where you can where truth makes sense within it. Do you see? Within that worldview, truth makes sense. In these others, truth actually doesn't make sense. What's truth to a Marxist? Truth to a Marxist is not whether you tell a lie or not. You can tell lies. It's whether you're getting to where you want to be. Do you see? The communist state. That's all that matters. So, do you see how this, this influences everything? Now, so, so it's important that you understand this about the Bible. And it's important that when you're talking to somebody, counselling somebody, you know, listening to somebody, that you're listening for whether they understand it about the Bible. And because you need to spend some time maybe talking to them about the Bible. Okay? So, Scripture is the final authority, but we've been told nowadays to question authority.
And we know that this is a profound thought because you can find it on bumper stickers. Question authority. All right. It's harmless enough if it just means don't believe everything you've been told. But that's actually not what it usually means. That's not what people mean when they say that. It means don't accept any other authority, any other authority apart from your own. Okay, that's usually the way nowadays it's understood. You know, nobody, let nobody tell you what to do. Okay? So if I say, if I come up here and I, I say, I'm going to teach you about counseling, but I'm not going to allow anybody to tell me how to counsel. I'm not going to tell, let anyone tell me how to do it. I, then I believe implicitly in my own ability to do it. I believe in myself utterly. What does that make me? That makes me ignorant, it makes me proud, it makes me foolish. It makes me disdain other people. So why would I get up here and tell you I wanted to counsel anyway? Because obviously I'm full of myself. I'm not interested in other people so much. So, um, but we do have this this, uh, environment in which people question authority. They question the authority of the Bible. People outside in the world, you expect them to do that because that's not their chosen circle, is it? So you would expect them to do that. What about Christians? You might expect that Christians understand the authority of Scripture and you would be mistaken. Yes, Pastor Les? Yes. Um, you would be mistaken. Christians buy into the cultures in which they uh, they live, and they also buy into the lies within the churches, which are promulgated in the churches nowadays. We live in an era within evangelicalism and the church uh, of terrible. Biblical ignorance uh, for for many Christians. Uh, they don't know their Bibles and they don't care to know their Bibles either. They don't read their Bibles for knowledge and information. They read their Bibles to feel good about themselves and to feel affirmed. Um, if you ask them anything that goes on in the book of Judges or in Second Samuel or you know, anything in the life of Job or so on, they wouldn't be able to tell you because they've never turned there. The pages of their Bible are pristine in those areas because they've never turned there except maybe accidentally. So there's a great deal of biblical ignorance. Even the New Testament, they haven't really understood that the Bible is written first for doctrine, as we will see tonight. That is for telling you what God says is so, or what God says is not so. What you are to understand about God, the world, and yourself. And how you are to apply those truths to your thinking and to every situation which you meet. So it's not surprising, because of, of um, biblical illiteracy, that many Christians don't accept the authority of the Bible in the way that you might think. 
So you always got to be on the outlook for that. What's another reason that many Christians don't accept biblical authority? Can you think of one? That's a very good one. Yes, yeah. They don't actually don't want to do what God says. Okay? They don't want to do it, so they don't want to li- they don't want to look at it with you. Yes. Yes. That is correct. Their teaching the teaching has been very poor. And and I don't need to tell you, do I, and without sounding censorious or whatever, that most preaching in most churches is pretty poor. You're not going to learn a lot under a lot of preachers. No, that's why I'm here and I can say this. Yeah. No, I can say it. I can. I wouldn't say that in another in certain other churches, but I can. I can say it here. Well, it's because he's sitting right in front of me. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah, and all that. Yeah, and it's his turn to buy me lunch next time. So. Yeah. Um, another thing, though, which is very. Uh, dangerous and it's something that's, that's come about recently since the late 1950s but has really come on a pace in the last um, 10, 15 years, maybe a little more is this view of God told me God told me uh, now I do understand people use that and they, they mean what they mean by it is, is perfectly innocent they're not saying they've, they've heard the voice of God coming to contradict what the Bible says. Um, they just mean that, that they've been in prayer, that God has, has kind of nudged them, got, got their attention somehow, woken them up from thinking in one way, and they've kind of realized something, yes? In, in, uh, of, of what God wants them to do or spiritual realm and so on. It's that ineffable kind of thing that they can certainly trace back to the Bible and say that it's biblical. They can say, oh yeah, this, this reminds me of a, of a passage in scripture, something I haven't been doing that the Bible says I should be doing. That is, is okay. I'd rather that people didn't say God told me, but anything like that is fine. Uh, but, but, uh, what I'm referring to is the much more insidious view whereby uh, you have you have uh, someone say, saying that uh, they have a word from God or a word from Jesus, and uh, you know that the most the modern variation of that is is the devotional of Jesus calling, the Sarah Young thing. Okay, the Sarah Young, she's quite clear about this. If you read, especially the first edition, she has started to change it in the next, in the ensuing editions. Okay, because these people do, you know. But, but in her first edition, which I have a copy of, uh, she is very clear that first of all, she got her inspiration for doing this from a Roman Catholic book. Straight away, that should cause you to question these things. Why? Well, because Roman Catholics don't accept the absolute authority of the Bible. Okay? 
They accept the Bible and the ch- and church tradition, and of course, church tradition always trumps the Bible, just from a, a practical result. So that's a very bad lead, and you would think that somebody who has some theological degrees wouldn't do that. And she does have some theological degrees. Okay, she has a master's degree, but don't let that fool you. I've run across so many uh, theologically illiterate master's students, you know, master of theology, master of divinity students, that it doesn't mean anything that they've got that. Um, but she claims that she wanted, it's not just the Bible, she wanted to hear from Jesus himself. Okay? So what she did is something that nobody in the Bible ever does. She uh, emptied her mind, as it were, and she just asked Jesus, you know, to, to just say anything he wanted, you know, communicate to her. She just wait on him. And when the message came down, she just write it down. Okay? That's channeling. That's channeling. Okay? It's done in every other religion. Okay? When shamans do it, or occultists, witches do it, okay, it's in the magical realm. But it's exactly the same thing. Um, you, you find it in every other religion, this kind of empty your mind. Even atheists do this, by the way. Okay? Because, the, you know, especially the, the earth people, they believe the earth will talk to them, you know, if they just empty their minds, you know, and be one with the world, okay? Then they'll be in tune, you know, like the tuning fork thing. Um, so that's never done in the Bible. The Bible never says that. When it says, be still, this is their favorite verse, be still and know that I am God, they ignore the context, which doesn't mean empty your brain and... Don't think of anything apart from the fact that I'm God. It doesn't mean that. It means stop fretting. Stop fretting. Know that I'm God. You're in the middle of turmoil. Just understand. Tell yourself. It's okay. I'm God. Okay? Stop getting anxious about it. Alright? You can't control it, but I can, God says. That's what that means. So she has written this book, which she says is not inspired, so it's not scripture, but it is the words of Jesus. All right, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. So it is the words of Jesus, Sarah, yes? Yes, it's the words of Jesus that I wrote down, but not inspired. Okay, so not God-breathed. Is Jesus God? So God gave you the words, but the words are not of God. Do you see the problem, if you just think a little bit? And strangely enough, these words are all affirming. They're all affirming. And people turn there, and instead of turning to the Bible. Remember why she did this in the first place. The Bible wasn't enough. So the Bible's not her final authority. And the Bible, for her, is not sufficient. Which we will be getting to, okay? Lots of people have got Jesus calling and they don't know any better. I'm not pointing my finger or blaming anybody, but if you've got it, then be careful 
at, at, at best, throw it in the trash. At worst, just be careful, okay? Use it as a non-inspired devotional and be careful of what it's telling you because the words are not from God, they're not from Jesus. And I'm really being generous saying that. Okay, I am being generous saying that. But I'm, I'm hoping I'm speaking to people with common sense. So, um, so that's, that is a big problem. What about another problem? There's one more, and this, this is something I've already hit on. What would be another source of authority that people often use, often call upon, that uh, will make them question or put aside the authority of the Bible? No, I mean, that would do commonly, of course, but... Yeah, but that would be Roman Catholics. Here I'm kind of talking about Bible-believing Christians. I know some Catholics can be believers, but not, not many. No, no, no. I'm actually, although, you know, there's something in that, commentaries or preachers, you know, or favorite theologians can take that place, but I'm actually talking about psychology. Yeah, oh, there you go. Psychology, yes. Psychology. And that is very appropriate because you will find that when you are counselling or trying to help somebody, um, many people, not all of them, but many people will have either already spoken to a psychologist who would have diagnosed them. Okay? And... Um, they would have believed the diagnosis. Especially, they would believe the diagnosis, the diagnosis if they were told, as they often are, that they are a victim. They're a victim. If they are a victim, then clearly they don't need to do anything. The problem's not with them. The problem was, was put upon them, you see. Other people are the problem. Do you understand? That's where we are in, the, in our nation today. Everybody's a victim, okay? So that nobody takes responsibility for their thoughts, their actions, their morals and so on. And when something bad happens or when somebody offends them, instead of having a backbone or growing one, uh, they would rather cuddle a kitten or a puppy and blame other people. I mean, I'm talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And that's psychology has done that. Everybody's a victim. It's the problem is not you. And, you know, you're under some sort of stress. You're under some sort of trauma. Um, therefore, the problem's everybody else. You're going to meet Christians who say that they believe the Bible and they say that they trust in Jesus as their saviour and they say they've been born again and that old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. You're going to meet these people and yet, if you try to, to apply the scriptures to them, you will quickly find that they say, you don't understand. I'm, and fill in the blank, 
Okay? I have this disorder. And they will tell you, they will, they, they will believe the label about themselves, I'm this. Well, if I'm this, it must be a medical condition that they think. It must be a medical condition, like I'm asthmatic. Okay? Or I'm allergic to peanuts. So, <clears throat> you, you ignorant preacher, you ignorant counsellor, what are you doing giving me peanuts? I'm allergic to peanuts. What are you do, giving, doing talking about sin to me? Okay. I, I can't help it. I'm depressed or I'm OCD or I've got ADHD or whatever. Yes? This is, this is who I am. This is what I am. What do you, what, this doesn't fit me. You don't understand. If you understood, you wouldn't be telling me, talking to me this way. I've already been diagnosed by an expert. But as, as I've said to you, these guys, they are not experts in the human psyche. They are not. And they're not scientific. And they are not successful. And also, they, um, they might call themselves scientists and say that it's science, but um, most scientists of behavior, you know, people that, that really are scientists in that, that field don't accept um, psychiatry and psychology as much more than quackery in many instances. Even many psychiatrists, people like Peter Bregin and Thomas Schatch and Paul Witz and so on, they will critique it and, and so on and they will say a lot of this is just, it's not very much different than like being a witch doctor or, you know, it's done at that level. If you don't believe me, then, you know, I can give you the references, but I've already told you, go online and watch Peter Bregin's stuff on YouTube, okay? Watch it, see what he tells you. See whether I'm, he's not the only one, but see whether I'm blowing smoke or not. <clears throat> the success rate is is tremendously small. In fact, it's it's... You, you can't measure it any different than if they'd have gone through it themselves. And I, I brought out some of that. I know I, there's a whole book about it. But I brought, brought out some of that last time, didn't I? About uh, the, uh, um, the uh, you know, disorder. What is it? PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. People get through it themselves, just after time and with some friends and family. Usually better than if they go and see a shrink and pay them an awful lot of money. Because the shrink will often make them go through it again. Instead of them working it out, you see that? They're, because they believe that you have to bring up the past all the time and regurgitate it and face it or whatever. Um, it becomes a double trauma for them. So they actually can do more damage. So that is something that we're going to have to deal with 
And that is why the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is key with uh, counseling and in the Christian church itself. I've said before that the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is the most attacked uh, doctrine in evangelicalism, without any shadow of a doubt. And it's attacked from all quarters, even within uh, evangelicalism. I, if you don't mind me saying so, I, don't, I know Les doesn't, but those people that believe that evolution and the Bible can go together deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Those people that believe, because they listen to science, or so-called science, uniformitarian science, or old age science, and reinterpret the opening chapters of Genesis according to that, deny the sufficiency of Scripture. How do I know? Because they're not listening to Scripture, they're listening to the scientists, the geologists, the, the astronomers. Do you see? The sufficiency of Scripture is that, is that this is sufficient. It tells you what you need to know. You say, well, does that mean that I can't read other books? and so? No, but make sure that they line up with this. And what they bring in from the outside world lines up and at least doesn't contradict this book. And then that's how you're to, to move forward. So let's go to Second Timothy, having said all of that. People question authority today. People like to be their own authority. You know, we think of the Me Too movement that has come out nowadays. Uh, it's kind of been hijacked. Um, but the Me Too movement is probably more about Me Too, me, than it is about, um, you know, sexual assault and so on. It's been, it's been co-opted. So a problem of authority when you put yourself in the, in the, in the middle of something like that. You don't have to listen to other people because everything starts with you, do you see? And you don't have to look, look on your, uh, at yourself. So second Timothy, have we, did we do this? Have we been here? No. Chapter three. And um, look at verse 14. You must continue in all the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is a continuing faith. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or is breathed out of God, or God-breathed. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so let's look at this verse. This verse is telling us that the entirety of Scripture is given by God, which we've already covered. Because it's given by God, it is... Profitable, and I don't mean that it's just helpful. It means more than that. It means that, that you consult it to your profit at all times. For 
First, doctrine. Again, doctrine is this thing that, that a lot of evangelical Christians are anemic to, but and they don't even like the word, and don't like the word theology and anything, and sometimes I understand that, but at the same time, you cannot think biblically if you're not interested in doctrine. You cannot have a statement of faith in your church if, if you're not interested in doctrine. You cannot grow as a Christian if you're not interested in doctrine. You can't. Okay? You've got to be interested in doctrine. That doesn't mean you have to rush out and buy Calvin's Institutes tomorrow. But it does mean you've got to pay, intra- pay attention to what the Bible says about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about mankind, about the world, about sin and about heaven and hell and so on. You have to know what to believe about these things, what's true, what's not true. But look how, look in the direction he, he, he takes this, and this is always done by, by the apostle. It's, it's profitable for doctrine, and then he says, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So, uh, reproof is not necessarily a, uh, a strong rebuke, though it can be that, but a reproof is Basically, you come to it in order to, to steady your understanding of something. Steady your mind, your, your, if you like, your uncertainties can be fathomed out here, okay? You forgot about something, you come back to it, it reproves you, okay? You know that, understand? For example, um, if, uh, if there's an economic recession on, you lose your job, Is God going to look after you? Well, you might start, because you've not thought about that for a while, you might might start thinking, how on earth am I going to make do? What what am I going to do? So you turn to the promises in um, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, that, that tell you that God knows what you need. All right? And it's not that great... Uh, brand new, sparkling, gas-guzzling, four-wheel drive SUV with all of the, you know, bells and whistles on it, thank you, um, that you've just bought or that you're hankering after. It's a pair of wheels. They can, you know, which you can drive and get you to backwards and forwards to where you need to be. That's where God is on those kinds of things. But God will take care of you. Alright? So the scripture reproves you in that sense. Okay? There's other ways that it, that it means uh, diff- slightly different things than a rebuke. But, but that's uh, really what the, the essence is there. For correction. Now that's a bit, bit more than that. Correction is where we are erring, where we're going wrong, where we've got the wrong understanding of something, where we're thinking and asserting and believing something that's in error. Then the scripture can change the way that we're looking at something. Um, Often what happens here is that um, we've been thinking along with the world and along with our default setting, which is independence from God, we've just been... You know, pottering along, thinking in a certain track, and everything's been okay, and then something, you get, things go wrong, 
And the Bible tells us to do something which we think is counterintuitive. We think is contrary to common sense. Contrary to what we almost, we believe we should be doing. Now this can be in a matter of, um, you know, if, if, if somebody threatens you, okay, if somebody thumps you, we think that the, the way to, do, you know, the intuitive way is to thump them back. Yes? Get aggressive back. Is that what scripture teaches? No, it says offer them your other cheek also. It's counterintuitive. Uh, do you remember that uh, passage in Matthew chapter 20 where you have, in fact, let's turn to it quickly so you can, we can see. Because this is perhaps the most counterintuitive <laughs> passage in the New Testament. Matthew 20. <clears throat> and it's the parable of the laborers, remember? And you know the story, okay? Um, the landowner goes out in the morning, agrees that he will pay the laborers a, a denarius a day, or a penny a day, if you like, to work in his vineyard. And then there are people standing around, standing around till, until the 11th hour. And he agrees with them to pay them a penny or a denarius for an hour's work. And so the people who've been working for the whole day say, and we think naturally they say, well, that's not fair, that's unjust. Because we have borne the the, the heat of the day and we've, we've worked for like eight hours. They work for one hour and they're getting the same as me. I know I would have a little problem with that. Okay? Intuitively, I think that's not fair. But Jesus said, hold on a minute, I'm not being unfair. I, you agreed with me for a penny. I'm not, I'm not, you know, undercutting you or anything. Here's your penny. Here's what you earn. I, so what if I agree with somebody else for a, pe- for a penny for less time? And then he says this, and this is the key uh, to that passage. And I've, I went all the way back to t- Timothy again. I don't know why I did that. But he says, "Why is why are oh sorry? Why is your heart evil? Because I am good." Do you remember that? Verse 15. Or is your eye evil because I am good? What does that mean? That's That's the key to that passage and understanding that passage. Here's the counterintuitive truth. You got, we got what was agreed. We should rejoice that other people got something we didn't get. So, um, you know, our kids, in fact, it's happened, it's happened tonight. One of our kids, Philip, gets to, uh, because some people had one ticket left for a certain show that they were going to in Napa, 
So Philip got the ticket. Okay? And Emily is, uh, maybe I shouldn't say her name, but one of our kids, <laughs> whose name we will scrub out later on in the, when we edit the recordings, one of our kids was grouchy because it's not fair that Philip gets to go and see the show and she doesn't. And my wife, quite rightly, told this young lady, you should rejoice. You should rejoice that he got that. Okay? Not be a sourpuss because you didn't get it. That's counterintuitive, do you see? But the Bible is often counterintuitive. It tells us, the world tells us to puff ourselves up and to to uh, make something of ourselves and tell us all about yourself and, and how wonderful you are. Sell yourself to me, you know? And the Bible says, humble yourself. Take the lowest seat. Okay? Don't seek great things for yourself. It's counterintuitive. So we have to understand that uh, that the Bible corrects us in ways like that. It also corrects us when uh, we know full well that what we're doing is wrong. But maybe we don't want to hear it, or maybe we just don't want to tell ourselves it, but we go and we'll listen to the counsellor or a preacher tell us it. And that's fair enough. That's, that, that's our job. Um, you know, often preaching does that job of, of reminding us what we already know. And... Um, that's correction. That's what scripture is written for. And instruction in righteousness. Instruction. That's imparting information, knowledge, stuff we need to know in order to know God, in order to beware of ourselves, in order to know our place, in order to know how to navigate this life and be righteous, because righteousness is something that we don't have. Righteousness is something that is imputed to us. We keep having to remember this. Righteousness is not something we've earned. Righteousness is given to us. It's not ours. Okay? It's not ours. It's somebody else's. And so, if since it's not ours and God sees us as righteous, we better understand that we ourselves are not righteous. We better go to the place that God has given to us for us to correct ourselves, reprove ourselves, build ourselves up in knowledge, understand what he says, so that we can be the man or woman of God thoroughly furnished out to all good works. Because an unrighteous man cannot do good works in God's sight. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 and following, where uh, Paul says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Christ Jesus. There's the foundation. So you must be saved first. But then take care how you build on that foundation. 
Is it going to be wood, hay, stubble? That's you, that's me, who are building, we're doing works, we're serving, we're just not serving God. We're serving because it makes us feel good and we tell ourselves we're Christians and uh, we're not really interested in serving God as God. And so we do these things and busy ourselves and the modern church is terrible for that. Um, and we build with, with wood, hay, stubble. And come the judgment seat of Christ, it all goes, <laughs> or oh, some other noise. It just, it just goes, it vanishes, it gets burned up. Or gold, silver, precious stones. That is that we've been understanding that our lives are to be guided by the word of God as the sufficient word to us. And that it has the authority to tell us what is so, to tell us what is not so, to tell us what we ought and ought not to think and do, to instruct us in righteousness, the way to go. Yes? That we will be fully furnished for all good work. This is most important because if we're fully furnished, fully equipped for every good work, well, isn't that Part of what, I mean, a big part of what counseling is supposed to do, it's supposed to help a person who's unfurnished and incomplete to be more complete, to serve God, to understand how they can serve God in that way. You can only do that if you use the Bible. You can't use that, use psychology and expect to get the results that God once. Does that make sense? I think it should make sense. So, let's have a look at uh, another passage. Uh, turn with me to um, Peter. <coughs> Excuse me. First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Look at verse twenty two. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. But how do you obey the truth? Through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Why does he make it so difficult? Why can't he just Hollywoodize it? Yeah, you take pure, the word pure can get out of there, can't it? Surely, sincere. Why can't that be scrubbed out? Why can't we just have love? Love, love, love. Because it's not enough for God. It's got to be sincere. It's got to be Pure, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So why would you need to go to some other word? Why would you need to counsel with some other word? I'm not saying that you can't use other books and, and so on, which are biblically based. You can. You can, but they're going to bring a person to the scriptures. They're just going to maybe do it in a better way than you can. 
But you don't need to go to all of these modern devices of man. Then he says in verse 24 and 25, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass, grass withers, and its flower falls away. Well, we're like that. We're like that. Um, a flower, a lily can be very beautiful and we can admire it, but guess what? Come the winter, it's going to be gone. Come a lawnmower or a cow, it's going to be gone. Um, come somebody who's not looking where they're going, going some uh, guy with big hobnail boots who's not paying attention, it's going to be gone. And that's it. We're like that. Our lives are like that. So, yeah, we might be glorious like a flower for a while. We might be resplendent for a little bit, but it doesn't last very long. We're not permanent at all. But... The word of the Lord endures forever. So it's best, if I can use this, this metaphor, this mix it a bit, it's best if the flower pays attention, not to other flowers, but to the word of God. Do you see? In its short time here, that it, it roots itself in something that will endure forever. Does that make sense? That's what we're saying with the sufficiency of Scripture. That's why it's so important. Um, all right, so I think uh, you know, there are other Scriptures that we could go to. and uh, We may turn to some of those, but, but I think those will do, quite honestly. The sufficiency of Scripture is uh, basically the idea that God has given us his word and that it can do everything, it can inform us in every way that God wants us to be informed about living this life in the world. You say, yeah, but, but we live in the modern world where we have to you know, drive cars and we have to uh, deal with computers and cell phones and what have you. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 28. Now, in Isaiah's time, you won't be surprised to hear that there were no iPhones um, or electric lawnmowers. There were nothing very much to break that you needed expertise to fix. But what he says here is still true of today. You need to apply it, okay? Give ear and hear my voice, verse 23. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day 
to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, or with a a modern replacement for the stick that does the same job. And the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. What's this passage telling you? This passage is telling you that the knowledge that we gain in order to um, plant furrows, plough furrows, sorry, plant seed, uh, and how we're to treat the different plants in order to get from them what we need to get from them once they're grown, how to store them, how to look after them, how to keep bugs off them, or nowadays, how to make tractors that do the same job and threshing instruments that do the same job and what have you. This all comes from God. Do you see? Do you understand? The Bible tells you that the reason that human beings can do this is that they, they have an intuitive knowledge for doing this. Uh, those of you who did the Worldview and Apologetics uh, lectures might recall that I spoke about science as personal knowledge. And I spoke about my, Michael Polanyi's materials and how we uh, most of what we know is actually intuitive. It's actually intuitive. We, we kind of know more or less what to do or what direction to go. We might not know exactly how to do it, but we, we have an intuition to go in a certain direction. Some of us stronger than others, you know. Uh, Sean over there has a much more intuition about how to, um, you know, maybe build something, okay, than I do. Okay, I'm going to have to really follow the intuition, or, but I'll also be wise and get the intuition from other people that, that are better at it than I am. But that's, it's, it, it's, it comes from God. It's in the world view, do you see, that we have. So the scripture might not tell you how to build a tractor or fix a tractor, but it tells you that God, the reason that we can build tractors or computers or iPhones is because God has given us the ability to do it. So, if I ask um, somebody, what's the time? Joyce, do you have the time? Or Susan, do you have the time? Yeah. Yeah. Have a look. What's the time? Close to ten minutes to eight. Okay. Now I could ask a chimpanzee that until I died, until my last breath, and he would not do this and any other than go. You know. But God has 
given us the ability not only to make watches, but to read watches and understand watches and what their purpose is and so on. This is part of our world view. Do you understand? Do you see how scripture does that? It situates us in reality by doing that. And world view, of course, is, is B on my outline, if you've got the outline there. The scripture tells us about the world. First of all, it doesn't lie to us about ourselves. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to those you love, how much more does your Father in heaven? And that would have been politically correct, apart from the fact that he slipped in there a very insulting and offending word. That is, he called us evil. If you then, being evil, that's part of the Christian worldview, and it rolls off Jesus' tongue as if he didn't have to think about it at all. It's just like the truest thing in the world. We don't think it's true in our independence and in our pride. We get in trouble when we will not have a worldview that owns up to the truth. Christians do that. Okay? Christians do that. We get into trouble when we think that the world, in its um, striving to understand the world, apart from the Bible and biblical revelation, comes up with a new truth that the Bible contradicts. And they say, well, there you go, the Bible's wrong. No, you're wrong. If you, what you say is true, contradicts the Bible, then it's not true. It cannot be true. That's got to be the Christian's position. And lo and behold, just give it a few months and it will be shown to be untrue. Oh, actually, they will say, in, you know, in the small print, what we said before, what we asserted before wasn't actually what we meant, you know? They haven't proved this, they haven't proved that. So, I like to, to think about the Christian worldview as reality. So, Christian real, re, worldview is the reality, but it's, it's reality um, that, w- that other people don't see, or they see just part of. They don't see it because they don't interpret it right. They don't interpret it right because they don't have the Bible or they don't believe the Bible. So, we're all, we're all human beings, we're all in the same world, we all see the same things, we all have the same data available to us, we all deal with the same emotions, more or less, and and disappointments and pains and so on. And yet Christians have the interpretation that's the correct interpretation of those things and tells them how to live or how to react, how to respond, how to humble themselves, how to stop fretting and why they should stop fretting and being anxious in a situation like that. Okay? The world doesn't. The world doesn't. But it will invent ways to say the same thing. Uh, uh, The Bible 
says take responsibility. I mean, it doesn't, there's no verse that says this, but it does. It says take responsibility for your own issues. But it also says bear one another's burdens. But it says that each one should bear their own burden too. It says if a man doesn't uh, work, neither should he eat. Okay? It's not for, for universal handouts. And yet there are, if you don't follow the Bibles, and the Bible's work ethic, and the Bible's understanding of, of property, and the Bible's understanding of morality, and, and uh, so on, you'll have to invent another one. Which is obviously not going to be the same as the Bibles, certainly not in all places, because otherwise it would be the Bibles. So very often it's going to differ from the Bibles, and they're going to think that's right, but it's not going to work in the world. So worldview. Uh, next, which goes into this. No excuses. No excuses. Have you noticed as you've read scripture that God doesn't accept excuses from anybody? Now, I can understand Aaron, okay? I mean, he's exalted, he's the first high priest, he's the brother of Moses. I mean, he's number two in the, you know, pecking order there. He's got a high position. And he doesn't even have to do half the work that Moses does. I mean, he's got it pretty cushy, doesn't he? So, so Aaron... He's, you know, he does these miracles and he does all of this great stuff, and yet, when it comes to um, facing Israel and, and guiding Israel and so on, what do you know? We get to Exodus chapter. Uh, what was it? 34, is it? 30, some, uh, somewhere there. Thirty-two, sorry, thirty-two. We have the incident with the golden calf. Moses is up the hill, nobody knows where he's gone, so the people start murmuring. They start getting independent again. Okay? And so they come to Aaron. We don't know where he is, where Moses is. So Aaron said to them, verse 2, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears and of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. All right? I've got an idea, Aaron says to himself. So all the people did it, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool. He had to work on it and made a molded calf. Because he'd seen them in Egypt. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because these were, you know, incurably religious people. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. Oh, see how he's, he's, he's in state. I mean, he's, in, uh, he's enjoying his role here as high priest. Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
And the Lord said to Moses, get down. <laughs> Go get down. Your people whom I brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And he comes down and he, he rebukes the people. And um, what's Aaron's excuse? Can somebody tell me? Well, yeah, but there's more than that. No, come on. Look at verse 24. What's Aaron's excuse? Ah, that's right. There, yeah. Whoever has any, I just said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Um, that is a great picture of, um, the thinking of, of people and how they, you know, they know the reality of it. But they, they make excuses for why something doesn't work out or why God's displeased with something or why, you know, whatever. Something's wrong in their lives. Isn't that true? And it's, when you look at it, it's like, you can see Aaron, you know, one minute he's, he's, he's there and he's the focus of attention. It's proclaim a feast to the Lord and, and there he is with his, his robes on and he's so impressive up there, isn't he? And then Moses comes down and he sees that Moses isn't best pleased with the performance and this is what he comes out with, you know. Well, yeah, well, I decided that this would be a good idea since you were so long and uh, I got all this gold together, threw it into the furnace and what do you know, you know? This, this calf came out and so we just thought it was a good idea. Guess what? God didn't accept the excuse. Uh, when Levi's sons offered strange fire to the Lord, that's Leviticus chapter 10, I believe, or was it Numbers 10? Numbers 10. When they offered strange fire to the Lord, what happened? They died. No excuse. Oh, but they were sincere. No excuse. When uh, the Philistines sent back the Ark of God and it was at Kiryas-Jerim for 20 years and then, um, then David wanted to bring it back into Jerusalem which he just captured and so on. And uh, they put it on a new cart. Yeah? And there it was, it was on this new cart, and, and there's Uzzah. And he puts forth his hand to, to, to stop the ark from, you know, from sliding off. I mean, he's got great motives, this guy. Next moment, he's dead. No excuse. No excuse. God said the Levites are to bear the ark, not a cart. Philistines can put it on a cart, not the people of Israel. 
Do you see? We make up excuses all the time. God does not accept your excuses. I know we've, we've run out of time nearly, but give me a few excuses. Just random excuses that we come up with. Okay, yeah. Okay, so God made me this way or something like that. Me this way. So if you're if you have homosexual tendencies, okay? If you have homosexual tendencies, then the Christian community needs to be sympathetic towards somebody who has a homosexual desire. Okay? Yes, they do. Yes, they do, because uh, it's an unwanted desire. Very often, it's an unwanted desire. But they have it. They don't want it, but they have it. So it's a conflict. Christians of all people should understand the pull of sin, shouldn't they? So, um, as long as they're not saying, I'm made this way, they deserve the support and sympathy of the Christian community. By the way, pretty soon that's going to be illegal to say that in this state. But but they deserve the, the, the sympathy of, of Christians. But to say God made me this way or evolution or, you know, I was made this way is both completely unscientific. Johns Hopkins University uh, proved that this was the case just two years ago. And of course the media ignored their research. <laughs> scientific research because it goes against the, the agenda but there is no um, gene for it or so on but yeah there are inclinations this way there are, there are inclinations this way and uh, as the same as there are inclinations to covetousness you realise that, that covetousness is an abomination too to the Lord Okay, but we don't you know, we don't have a go at people because they're covetous, do we? Okay, church has really been hypocritical and really failed on, on this score. Uh, what's another one? I've just given you one uh, about half an hour ago. Well, I've been diagnosed. By a shrink. Okay? Now I'm not talking about anything that has a pathology that you can test under a microscope, take blood work and so on. That's fine. Okay? Because some people with cancers can, can become violent. People with Alzheimer's can become violent or, or, or change their moods and so on. That's understood. I'm just talking about somebody who's Hyperactive, a kid that's hyperactive, maybe he's hyperactive because you're giving him too much soda. Because he's not going to sleep on time. Um, diagnosed by these people. What's another excuse? Well, this one I've told you, God told me. I read a book where it said, that's another one, 
Just one more. Yes, that that is one. This idea, this hyper grace stuff, which says that uh, I can, I'm saved by grace, therefore I don't have to do anything. I don't need to bear responsibility. Uh, yeah, which is is heresy, of course, dealt with in Romans. So that's true. So th- this is the kind of thing, and you can make your own list. Think about your own examples here. But God doesn't accept any of these as excuses. Yes, Tina, what? Oh, yeah, I'm the victim. Yeah, why? how can we not have that one? I'm the victim. You'll meet this one a lot. Here's the thing. Just one sec. Here's the thing. You might be, but you don't have to stay a victim. You might be the victim, but you know what? What does the Bible say you should do? Are you going, are you willing to listen to what the Bible says you should do? Because I know somebody in the scripture who was a victim. And how was he? I know actually other people in scripture who were victims. Hebrews chapter 11 at the end there talks about them. Had all these things done to them. Okay, but they trusted in God. Yes? Um, very often, I mean, yes, there, there, there are people that are victimized. And so you need to understand that. But don't let them play the victim because what, what's that doing? That's identifying themselves as the victim. That means they don't have to do anything. Well, you can't help anybody that, that won't change themselves. God is sympathetic to the fact that they may have been victimized. But guess what? He still expects them to do what he says. Don't carry it around. It's not a badge to wear. It's not an excuse. Um, And of course, most of the time nowadays, we live in a culture of victims, thanks to psychology. So, uh, so nowadays, you know, everybody's a victim, aren't they? You know, you hurt my feelings, so, you know, you're victimizing me. Um, so, you know, don't excuse, God doesn't accept that as an excuse. What's yours? You know. Yes. Yes, I am who I am. That's correct. Those people who think that I am what I am, I'm, you know, it's basically a God made me this way, or a I am made this way view, you see, unless God changes me. God doesn't accept that as an excuse. Okay? Yeah. Well, you can't keep the commandments perfectly, but you can't. God expects you to keep them yes. as well as you can keep them. Yes. Yeah. So, um, very important, very important in in my life, in your life, that we, if we go um, 
to God and we say, I can't help this, until we come to God and say, um, this is a sin, I see it as a sin, I know you see it as a sin, I know there's absolutely no excuse, I know you, you expect me to do something about it. You can pray to God until you're blue in the mouth, blue in the face. Blue all over. Okay? You can, you can pray to him to help you and you, nothing's going to happen until you do what you're told. Then something will happen. Okay? God will start working when you do what, you te- what he tells you. You say, are you saying that, that God helps those that help themselves? As long as we understand that, that I'm not talking about salvation there, I'm not talking about things uh, like that, but I am talking about people that can get up off the ground, pick themselves up, dust themselves on, on stop crying about it, although it hurts, and get back on the horse, or whatever metaphor you want to use. No. It's not true to say that God helps us only when we're obedient. But it is true to say that you can't expect God to help you if you're disobedient. And also, uh, there is a line of obedience and a line of disobedience. We don't have a, a it's not like passing an exam. You know, today I got 100% in obedience to God. No, you didn't. You probably got about 75%. But your general trend is obedience. Do you see? Uh, then, yes, God, even though you were disobedient 25% of the time, uh, God will probably help you. Although sometimes his help will be not helping you. Won't it? You know that. You know, we know that. God's help will be doing nothing. And letting you stew in your own juice for a while. Or figure it out for a while. Yes? We know that. And just finally on this uh, repentance, we have to face consequences and uh, we must have repentance. Repentance here is, I thought this about it, I was thinking this way, and I need to change the way I'm thinking about it. I've got to see things the way God sees it. I've got to take ownership of this in the way God wants me to take ownership of of it, not in the way that I think I should take ownership of it. It's a big mistake that people make. People people make the mistake of of saying, "Oh, I see. Yeah, this guy. I've heard this guy here, and he's helped me, and he says this, and now I see what my problem is, and I'm just going to do that." Okay. Well, what does God say about it? What does God say your problem is? Because the guy might have something that will help you, but at the end of the day, it's what God says. Because you've got to be in agreement with what God says to go in God's direction, to go away from that sin, away from the uh, pit, as it were.